If you would, grab your Bibles to John 12, and let's read this. John 12, 27 through 36a, first part there, and then we'll get 36b next week. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said that to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I want to talk about the glory of the hour that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 12. So just about every aspect that we're going to talk about today is really centered on the death of Christ and what that brings in regard to His exaltation and what that brings also um, for us to understand um, His perspective on things and what has come to us because of his life and his death. What I find fascinating in this text here is the first words that we see in verse 27. So we are just, whether it's hours or we are days, in in, in the span of eternity, in the span of Christ's life, we are literally hours away from the cross. And yes, we know Christ is 100% man. We know he's 100% God. He's the most unique one who's ever stepped foot on this planet. He's the glorious God, and yet He is God in a body. He is human as well. And in that moment, He has an overwhelming moment. And He speaks there just from a moment of honesty about His emotions and what is, what is on His mind and what He's feeling in regard to His death that is imminent. So this is in regard to John's Gospel the last public teaching of Christ. This is the last public thing that he is going to say in the city of Jerusalem. He's likely near the temple. Now, whether or not this is on the same day of the triumphal entry, same day that the Greeks come, we're just not totally for sure. But we do know this. These are the last public statements to the public to say to them, um, this is who I am. And this is what it looks like to believe in me. This is what will happen. If you do believe in me, you will step into the light. Uh, Once we finish John chapter 12, these last public statements, we will be in the upper room and we will be in the Garden of Gethsemane and he will just be speaking to the most intimate of followers. And so these words are important. Jesus said these publicly. They would have been heard by Gentiles, they would have been heard by Jews, and they would have been heard by the twelve as well. And he will say a number of different things in verses 23 through 50. He will speak about the necessity of the Son of Man to be lifted up. He will talk about that the enemy has been dealt a fatal blow in the death of Christ. He will call us to make the most of our time because the light is in our midst. And 
The response will be, we will see this more next week, the response will continue to be more unbelief instead of belief in Him. And He will talk about then embracing His words as one of the most important things that we will do and can do. So let's talk about the first point this morning that's found in verse 27. Let's look with me, if you would, again in verse 27 so we understand what is being communicated here as we pull out this principle in verse 27. So Jesus speaking says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So this is the first time that Jesus has said this, that he's he's feeling overwhelmed at the reality of what is coming. Again, we are just literally hours away um, from his death. And so as he begins to feel the weight of not only just the, we've got to be careful here, not just the brutality and the horrors of the cross, but we are, he also knows that he's going to bear sin as he hangs on the cross. So he is thinking about the reality of all of this, and in the moment, he is overwhelmed at the reality. He will bear sin. He will be brutally beaten, and he will be mocked, and he will be blasphemed. And so in this moment, he who knew no sin is thinking about the reality of what he is about to do and what will be done to him. And so we see his emotions. And I I find this this morning incredibly comforting, and I want you to do that as well. That the unique thing about Christianity is this, is that Jesus is communicating here one of the most natural things that we have all experienced at some point in time in our life. We have all at some point in time been overwhelmed with life. Where we're just, we can't sleep, we can't eat, we are, we are worried and it's dominating us and Jesus isn't worried here. But we, we know this, we know what it's like to be overwhelmed. So when you and I are overwhelmed and we go and we pray to King Jesus, who is our great intercessor by the way, we pray to one who himself, when he was here, was what, according to verse 27? Overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed. So this is, so when we go to pray, Christ never says this, I, I can't relate to you. I don't know what you're talking about. But good luck with that. No, we go and we pray with one who gets it, who understands that there's times in life where, where it just feels overwhelming. And again, I, I just want to say this, and, and we, need to, we need to put it deep inside our minds and in our hearts. You and I never pray to the Lord Jesus a prayer that's deeply connected to the reality of living here where he goes, I don't get it. Now, he doesn't get sin in regard to, he never sinned, but boy, he gets the human existence. He was up close and personal to broken people who were overwhelmed with life. And so in this moment, he's overwhelmed. And, I, and again, I find great comfort here that he understands these kind of moments. And so he says here, What shall I say about my overwhelmed feelings that I'm experiencing now? Do I say to the Father, Father, you've got you to get me out of this. I need rescue. Can you get me away from these people? Can you get me away from this place? I don't want to be here. But instead, what does he do? He doesn't say, get me away from these people in this place. He says this, this is the purpose in which I came. And so I've got to embrace this. 
And I praise His name this morning in this great reality. The Father offered Him a cup. And it was the cup of salvation, wrath, and all of this. And Jesus drank every drop of the cup that the Father offered Him. And if He didn't drink it, then you and I are here in this room this morning wasting our time. Because there's no hope except for us to try to be good enough to bring about salvation in our life, which we cannot do. Only salvation comes through His life through the altar of the cross. That is the only way. And so we couldn't do this. And so our great hope this morning and confidence rests in the reality is that Christ was offered this cup and He drank it all. And yet it doesn't diminish that in the moment it felt to Him very overwhelming. It was an overwhelming, thoughtful reality of what was about to take place. All of this was the Father's purpose for the Son. And in this great work of Christ, He would not forsake His Father, nor would He forsake you and I in the hope of our salvation and redemption through His death. And so we see this unique aspect of the nature of Christ And so why? So though he's overwhelmed, he yet continues to submit and trust in what his father's purpose is for him, that he would go to the cross. And so he says the words, so I'm I'm troubled, I'm overwhelmed, and so what do I say about this? What am I going to do about this? Do I I tell the father, father, you got to save me from this hour, and then notice his his deity in the midst of his humanity. He says, it's no, for this hour I came. I came. I came for this purpose and I will embrace it and I will go all the way to the cross. You see, in the Father's plan, Jesus came to suffer and he did so by faithfully submitting to every aspect of his Father's will. He never shied away. He never tried to escape this, this anything that the Father had asked of him to do and to say And in that reality, the cross was not going to fall into that category. He was going to embrace the reality that he would come and he would die. And so you and I have come to know this, that there are great things to experience in life, but those things often come at a great cost and great sacrifice. And our salvation is exactly that. Our salvation has come to us. This offer of salvation has come to some of you in the room this morning who do not yet believe This offer of salvation from the loving heart of God, calling sinners to Himself, it came at a great cost, the very life of Christ. So let me talk about this before we move on to the second point this morning. So that's what what is troubling His soul in this moment is the reality of the cross. But let's talk about who is troubling His soul. Who's kind of brought this about, the who of this. And guess who the who is? Us. It's our sin. It's our sin that has led to this eternal plan before the foundation of the world that Christ would come and die on the cross. And so it's our sin. We are the who. And again, we were his enemies. We were born in sin. We were separated from him. And so in this moment, we are the, the who in regard to our sin that is troubling him in regard to this. And yet at the same time, guess who's going to get the benefit of what he's about to do? Us. We're going to get that. And that's the amazing thing about grace is that the enemies of God get this extension of the incredible grace and mercy 
of his glory. So though his lifting up would be, from a human perspective, the ultimate shame, it brought about the greatest exaltation of the Savior. So the world looked at it as shameful to die on a tree, shameful to die on the cross, and particularly 2,000 years ago, it was criminals. And so Christ, what would apparently be a thing of shame, we sing about all the time, do we not? We talk about it all the time. What is it? The cross of Jesus Christ is the treasure and prize for us in our lives because the hope of the world has come to us through the Son and through the cross. And so I just ask this question, so how then should we respond in this reality knowing that he's, he's overwhelmed and yet He's going to continue to embrace the Father's purpose and plan for Him. How should we respond? Let me give us two things. We could probably have a lot of them here, but let me give you two. We should, as believers, come to really recognize and embrace the reality that we should see ourselves as crucified with Christ as He died on the cross. Let me just remind us, of this reality. So in our salvation and in our daily life of sanctification, there's a reality for us that is true. This is Galatians 2:20. I have been, have been, those who've come to faith in Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. So therefore, Paul writes, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And then he says, in the life that I now live here on the earth, in the flesh, that I am here, I now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So knowing the reality that he's overwhelmed and that he died for us, and that we have come to know this reality in salvation because of his life and death on the cross, we this morning should embrace as believers that we have been crucified with him that it is His power, that it is His life that we need flowing through us most. Secondly, the cross should lead us and this reality should lead us to hate our sin and submit to His Lordship. At times we wink at our sin or sometimes we try to manage the issues of our lives and we know how well that goes, right? We don't manage them very well and when we wink at them, We let them remain around and they get bigger and bigger and they become an issue for us. And so we need a critical perspective in our lives that in these kind of moments that we cannot wink at or try to manage something that is waging war against our soul. It is only the hope of the cross. It is only what he did where we find the freedom. So I want us to see as we begin, his soul is overwhelmed and yet in the midst of his overwhelming this overwhelming reality, he embraces the reality that he has come for this hour. So let me ask this question. We're going to move on to point two. So what do we do in an overwhelming moment as a Christ follower? What should be the aim in those moments? What what should we want from our life to be exemplified? Christ teaches us what that looks like. Look in verse 28. So let's talk now about the glory of glorifying God's name. So here's Christ's response in regard to being overwhelmed and embracing the reality that he must go to the cross. Here's what he says. Father, in my overwhelming reality of what's, what I'm feeling right now, I'm embracing 
your purpose and plan for me, and this is what I want in, the, in this moment. I want your name to be glorified. So, Father, glorify your name. And I wish I could have been there to hear the Father speak. He spoke out loud. How amazing is that? And, the, and the, the Father says, this voice came from heaven. I have glorified my name, and I'm going to glorify my name again. So how did Jesus deal with this overwhelming moment in his life, and yet at the same time he's embracing the Father's purpose for him? Here's what he did. He said, Father, use this moment to be a moment that your name would be glorified above all things. Because, Father, that's why I have come. I, I want your name to be glorified. And, and so he focuses not on his own life and, and rescue from the trouble that is in his spirit, but with great passion, he tells the Father, Father, I want your name in my life to be most glorified. I don't know about you, but I know sometimes in my life, I have a tendency when I'm overwhelmed to withdraw, to not want to talk and engage with people and kind of isolate myself. And, and when I do that, I, I, I don't lead myself to a place of, of finding the freedom that I need from that. And Christ teaches us. Again, I want you to notice, He's not off somewhere by Himself and somebody has secretly recorded these words. Where is He? He's in public. He is saying these words in front of crowds. They're going to hear Him say this. They're going to hear the Father speak. And so here's Christ just saying this. I want your name, not my name, not my rescue. I want you in the midst of this trouble. I want your name to be glorified. And so he's not withdrawing to the point where he's not going to be connected with people. He just sets his gaze and purpose on glorifying his Father. I thought about my own life this week and how sometimes I need to ask myself on a more consistent basis, why do I stay downcast in my spirit longer than I probably need to where I focus on my pain and my confusion Instead of just saying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but will you use this and will you glorify yourself in the midst of even my confusion and in my pain and in my wrestlings with things? And so since Jesus dealt with his moment in this way, then we must choose to follow him in the same kind of way. None of us are going to face the kind of task that Christ was faced with on that day where we bear the sin of the world. And since his trouble and spirit was so large we have to practice what he practiced that we turn to the father and say lord i'm just going to continue to embrace the reality that through my life and in my life i want you glorified you see from his example it is to be our great aim that no matter the level or amount of suffering christ is to get the glory from our life and so one of the most frequent things that we should consistently say is just that. Lord, bring glory to your name as I wrestle with this. Lord, bring glory to your name as I do this. May, may through my life in these overwhelming moments, may you be glorified in the most significant way. Now I want to remind us of something. In the church today, particularly the American church, we have become very man-centered in preaching. It's not the right way preaching is God-centered always. The purpose of preaching is the exaltation of God. That is always the purpose of preaching. And so what we're doing this morning greatly benefits us for this, watch this, for this reason. 
When God is lifted high, His people get the benefit of that because we see His glory. And I want you, I want you to know this, and, and again, we must get this understanding. This is so important. The main reason, foundational reason, why Christ died for us on the cross was to glorify the Father. We, because of that, this was the plan, because of that, guess who gets the benefit of Christ's great passion of glorifying the Father? We get the benefit of that great reality in His death. So His great passion, foundationally, to die and lay His life down for our sin, to rescue us and to call us into relationship, was to glorify the Father. So notice, in His overwhelming moment, Father, I am so troubled in spirit. And so what shall I say about this? Rescue me from this? No, for this hour I've come. And so in this hour, Father, do this. Glorify your name. Glorify your name as I follow you and I walk with you. And then the Father speaks. And He says that I have glorified my name. And I will glorify it again. Now this is the third instance At Jesus' baptism, if you remember, the Father spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Uh, Four of them were up there, spoke. Um, They heard the Father speak, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And now this is the third instance of a public speaking, direct speaking in the midst of people from the Father affirming who Christ is. And now notice this. When Jesus says, Father, glorify Your name, the Father says this. Don't freak out about this. God God gets to do this. We don't get to do this. The Father gets to say, I have glorified my name. And I'm going to glorify it again. How did the, in the context, again, and remind us, how was the Father going to get great glory through the life of Christ? So the Father, as every word Jesus taught, every healing Jesus did, Everything that he did in regard to confronting the religious leaders, everything was righteous, everything was holy. So everything that Jesus did, who got the great glory from that? The Father did. And so Jesus is saying to the Son, Father, I want you to get great glory. And the Father's saying, I've gotten great glory through you, Son. And then when you go die on the cross on Friday afternoon, and you bear the sin, and you become the sacrifice and the propitiation bearing my wrath, I will get glory again in your death. And so the Father is affirming that He gets glory through the Son in the way the Son is obedient and following the Father. And so, again, so we see, first of all, the glory of the gravity of the hour. Jesus embraces it, even though He's overwhelmed. What is His main mission in this moment is that the Father would be glorified. Let's look at the third reality in 29 and 30. And it's the glory of hearing the voice of God. Look with me at that again, 29 and 30. So the crowd that stood there and heard it, heard the voice, they said, it's thunder. They, they blamed it on the weather. They attributed what they had heard to the weather. Others said, no, 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 no. It's an angel. An angel has spoken to him. And then Jesus clarifies and says, no, this, this voice, voice, not weather, not an angel, this voice, it has come for your sake, not for my sake. Now, I want to talk about this just for a moment because we live in a culture that does this. 
You hear this saying in church all the time, there's nothing new under the sun, and there's not. So 2,000 years ago, the Father directly spoke in the midst of people. And He said these words, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the people began to think about what they heard, and they began to attribute it in two directions. One was a more naturalistic approach, and secondly was a spiritual approach, not a God-glorifying approach. So we see this all the time. I've, been, I've not been all over the planet, but I've been on the planet in a number of different countries, and I've seen some amazing things, beautiful things. I believe God is the creator of this planet. I believe at nighttime when we look up and we see the stars, and if we could get in a telescope and we could see further, or we see the pictures that are being sent back from us from those distant galaxies. I think God spoke all of those things into existence. He's the creator of them all. And yet in our world today, what is our world, how does the world respond to the reality of that phrase, God created all of this? They use a naturalistic approach. No, this is just the result of an evolutionary process. This is just the natural course of things that happen. And so they they give a naturalistic, God-denying kind of approach on these things. And this is exactly what happened there. I want you to listen to this. The eternal God, the Father, spoke. if, If He spoke in this room this morning, I would hope that we would go, we're listening. Amen. They attribute this to the weather. And again, we see this all over in our culture. That we're attributing things to natural processes of man and man's thinking and man's philosophies. Now, the second group heard the Father speak this day. And they're like, no, no, are y'all kidding? It's not the weather. It's not thunder. Look, look up in the sky. There's no thunder. There's no clouds. This is an angel. So watch. They go a step further. They spiritualize what they heard, but they don't attribute what they heard to the glory of God. This dominates our culture. There are a lot of spiritual people in America that will affirm angels, crystals. Crystals are making a comeback, by the way, if you didn't know that. But crystals everywhere. Don't. Just kidding. Don't do that. But people are doing that. And the crystal is going to bring energy and all this kind of stuff and so 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 there's some who attribute it to angels but listen 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 eternal god the father spoke in the midst of people and they missed it and they attributed his voice to an angel and so all around us today still not just in this room All over the world today, you know what God's doing? He speaks. He's a speaking God. And He speaks through His Word. He speaks through His creation. He speaks in unique circumstances. We've all been in those moments where we see something go on and and there's a a picture where we understand that's what God's like in a sense or how God works and how God does things. And so He's constantly speaking and shaping us and doing these incredible things. And so here in the text... The same thing is happening 2,000 years later. There's a naturalistic, man-centered attribution or giving credit to man-centered things that God has done. 
or we give a spiritual answer, a spiritual testimony, but it's not connected to the glory of God. And so that's what's happening in the text. And so Jesus just speaks into the midst of their misunderstanding and says, okay, y'all need to know something. This voice that you just heard that y'all are kind of discussing and you're confused about, the Father gave this to you. I didn't need it. I know how the Father thinks about me. I know what the Father feels about me. But this was spoken so that you would believe that I'm the one who glorifies the Father and that the Father is glorified in me. And I just want to say this morning and remind you and I this morning that there is an incredible glory of the speaking of God that comes through the preaching and the teaching and the reading of His Word. But then most in our culture today just want to explain things away. And what we're reading here is an example of what's said multiple times in the New Testament. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear. And God was speaking on that day. God is speaking today through His Word, not extra revelation. We're not waiting on new books to be added to the New Testament. We have enough. We've got a full revelation of who God is in regard to the New Testament and the Old Testament. But this reality still exists today. God has uniquely and clearly spoken in His Word concerning the glory of Christ. And so we're not going to explain things away naturalistically, and we're not going to give some kind of mystical, angelic explanation. He is a God who speaks. Isn't that amazing? It's the God who speaks to make Himself known. And you know this reality. We live in a world that's full of speculation. Speculation and opinion. And as Christ followers, we don't speculate. We embrace the truth even when we don't fully understand. We know that God speaks and when He speaks, it's true. And we embrace it. And in time, as we read and we pray, we come to a better understanding, don't we? I became a believer at 17. Boy, there were some concepts that I didn't understand at 18. There were some concepts I didn't understand at 25. And now I'm very ripe and mature. And there's still some things I'm chewing on and coming to a place of understanding. But some of those things are so sweet. They're so satisfying to know the reality of who He is. Let's look at the fourth thing this morning. This is a good one. There better be some amens in a minute. Just telling you, there better be some amens. The glory of Satan's defeat. Hello? Okay, thank you. You've got to get with it, people. Let's go. Look at 31. Now, notice, notice these, you can use the word now twice. Now is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Can't never skip over any word in any sentence. For Jesus used the word now twice in the same sentence. He is emphasizing something. Something is happening. In my death, let me tell you what's going to happen. Now is the judgment of this world. I came and it's going to bring about judgment. Judgment on the enemy. Judgment on sin. Judgment on this reality. And then now, the great liar, the great deceiver, the great accuser of the brethren, 
Now the ruler of this world, he will be cast out. Now let's talk about this phrase, cast out, just for a moment. It doesn't mean that he's been put into a box and hidden away. We know, we know that Satan is still deceiving people and lying. But here's what happened at the cross. He was dealt a fatal blow on the cross. That is, for those who come to faith in Him now, we don't have to buy all the lies. There's a, there's a learning. Our mind has been renewed and we can hear and we can discern. No, that's a lie. So I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to take thought every captive and make it be obedient to Christ so that I don't buy the lie of what, the Satan, so, of what Satan says. And so he's not like put away in a box somewhere and he's not having influence. But it means this, that his tentacles and what he did before, they were dealt a significant powerful blow when Christ died on the cross. And so he says it here, now is the judgment of this world. See, the death of Jesus is the great culmination of the work of God to crush the enemy's power and influence over the world. And the judgment on the world comes in his death as it reveals that he is the only answer to what you and I need. Either people will come to him as the light or they will remain in darkness and love the things that they do. John 3 verse 19. Then remind us of some of the words in this context of the glory of Satan's defeat. 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the, listen, this is God's testimony that he has born, that he has spoken concerning his son. Here's the testimony. That whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made God to be a liar. So watch this. How significant was it on this day that the Father said, I have glorified my name. I will glorify it again through your life, Christ. How important was that? To, to have a naturalistic approach or to attribute the speaking of God to angels? The testimony that he has borne concerning his son. This is my son, my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. You listen to him. To deny that is to call the testimony of God the Father over his son as the only hope, the only way of salvation is to call God a liar because the Father's only great testimony is the glory of his son. And what he did on the cross. And so it is important for us to embrace these words, as John says there. Whoever does not believe God's testimony has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So let me read a few things about the ruler of this world and the judgment there. This is Jesus in John 14 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. John 16, 11, speaking about the Holy Spirit concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Ephesians 2, 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
So Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. His kingdom, the prince of the ruler of this air, will be dealt with in a great judgment in the death of Christ. Now again, this does not mean that it will completely stop some of his deception. That will come in the future, by the way, where he is cast into hell as well. But there is great hope that we have today that we do not have to fall under the lies anymore. That God has spoken. He's given a clear path for how we ought to live our lives. So let me give you a few more verses about this glory of Satan's defeat. Luke ten eighteen, And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Colossians 1, 18, And he is the body of the church. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, in everything Christ would be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen to Acts twenty six eighteen. This is Paul speaking. He's on trial. Talking about his mission and his call of his life. He said, this is what I did. To go to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 20, verse 14. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. Christ has conquered Satan. They are not equal, by the way. These are not two gods pitted at each other. This is a angelic being that had been created by God who rebelled against God. They are not equals. And he is defeated. And he's a liar. He's accuser of the brethren. And I just, again, I want to remind us this morning, we do not... The defeat at the cross and the resurrection is that we don't have to live under the influence of the lies. If we have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in us. And this power enables us to say, no, I'm not going down that road again. I know it's at the end of that road. I'm not going down that road of sin. So I'm going I'm to live for Christ. I have been redeemed by Him. And so Satan has been defeated He has been defeated. And the cross is this great symbol of victory. So I want to close now. And I want to talk about the glory of the cross of Christ. So look what he says in 32 and 33. So he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And 33 tells us that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This whole section here, boy you, could, boy, you could outline it in all kinds of ways. Here's another way you could outline what we've been looking at. 
Verse 24 speaks about the necessity of the cross. Verse 27 speaks about the pain and the anguish of the cross. Verse 28 talks about the glorifying of God and Christ in the cross. And verse 32 that we just read there speaks about the fruit of the cross, the salvation of people. And that's what I want to talk about for a moment. So Jesus says, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the third time that he has said that. Let me just read you the others briefly. John three fourteen, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And now here in John twelve thirty two, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So let me make some statements that I think are really important for us to frame what's going on here. The cross was horrible. Every aspect of the pain, the beatings, the nails, the crown of thorns, the agonizing thirst that he experienced there. The horrors of the cross is pain. I, th- I think, though, that when we come to know Christ, it moves it not just from an altar of death, but it comes to a throne of life of the greatest glory. I and you must cling to the cross. This is our hope. This is our hope right there. And so, yes, it was an altar of death. But it's also an altar of the greatest triumph and exaltation of Christ. That's why we preach about the cross. That's why we sing about the cross. That's that's why He gets the greatest glory. He's got the name above every name because He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so therefore, God is highly exalted and we gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On earth, on under the earth, and everywhere. He gets this great glory. And so the horrors of the cross, this pain moves the cross, not just to be an altar of death, but to be a throne of life as He atones for sin. And as the cross also back in the day was a word of shame to most people 2,000 years ago, it becomes one of the most spectacular words to speak about today the cross of jesus christ such hope is connected to the cross of christ and so jesus will in a few days from this text face horrible hatred and mocking of the cross in the cross and yet it will bring about the greatest glory the salvation of his enemies to those who would believe by faith so let me tell you another thing about the cross Yes, the cross reveals how much he was hated, but it also reveals how much his people love him. So yeah, God is hated, 
And yet those we come to faith now, it's a motivator for us to say how much we love Him and how much we want Him to be exalted. And so, yes, the cross reveals how much He was hated, but it also reveals why He is so loved now by Christ's followers. And again, what seemed to be the greatest tragedy 2,000 years ago became the most amazing triumph in the history of the world. Now I want to go back to something I said years ago. There's this word the Reformers back in the Reformation began to use, and it's called imputation. It's a great word, imputation. I thought about making us all say it together, but some of y'all don't speak English very well, and so don't even... But imputation is a great word. It's an accounting word. It speaks about things being in a column. Things are in a column. But when it uses it here, it's a single column in regard to, like, like our, our sin is in a column, and, and it's just full of stuff. Everybody's, all of us, in the column. But then Christ had a column, an accounting column, and in His accounting column was not sin, it was holiness and righteousness. Now watch this. The Reformers used this word, and it's beautiful for us. That when Christ died on the cross... And when you and I come to believe in Him, and He he brings us into relationship, He gives us the new birth. Watch this. This column that has our sin, we we need to be reminded that the Father moved our account into the Son's account. So He takes our sin and He put it on His Son. And then glory to His name. What was in his account, his righteousness, he takes it and he puts it in our account. So why do we sing and preach about the cross? Because it's the most amazing thing in the history of the world. We get his righteousness and he got our sin. That's why we can't stop talking about the cross. That's why it's wrong for churches to not talk about it. Every sermon must be cross-centered, Jesus-centered, Father-centered, Spirit-centered. We must glorify Him in the glory of the cross. So we'll close with this. Two quick, two quick points. Do you think everybody got it on that day? <laughs> no. So look at 34. There's the gravity of missing the glory and misunderstanding. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So they're confused with what Jesus has been saying. We've been taught all of our lives that the Christ is going to remain forever. You know, where does that come from? Daniel chapter 7. So they're going to ask, who, Okay, who's this Son of Man you're talking about? Because it seems to be different than the Son of Man. Because when we read about the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, he gets an everlasting dominion and a kingdom. Listen to this important point. They had been taught all of their lives to have an expectation when the Messiah comes, He's going to rescue them from their enemies, their political enemies. So they had a viewpoint of the Messiah connected to Daniel 7, but not connected to Isaiah 53. That the one who has an everlasting kingdom would be a suffering servant. He would be a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep led to the slaughter. 
And he would lay his life down and he would die bearing the sin of man. And so this gravity of missing the glory and understanding is they consider Daniel 7 without considering Isaiah chapter 53. And so yes, he has a glorious everlasting kingdom, but it has come about because of the truth of Isaiah 53. So they asked Jesus, we're confused. Who is the Son of Man? And look at 35 and 36. So here's how Jesus responded to them. The light, and again he's speaking of himself, is among you for a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Okay, this is a response question. Y'all ready? There's one word that seemed to like be in there six times. Does anybody have an idea of what that word is? Light. Light. This is the third time he has referred to himself as light. So here's what he's telling people that day. Look. I'm going to be here just for a few more days. Boy, you better walk in my light. And if you don't walk in my light and you don't come to know the light, then you're going to stumble around in the darkness. And if you don't come to the light, you will remain in darkness. Not only in life, but in eternity, that will be the case. And so there is a great danger of missing the light. And I love what Christ does here. I don't know about you, but some of you, have lots of questions for God. God, will you, I, I wonder about this thing and I wonder about that thing. We've got all these questions that we want to ask God and sometimes they, we think they're important and God's like, no, I got something else to say. So they've got a question. Who is this son of man? And he doesn't address Daniel 7. He just says this. Now let me tell you what the reality is. I am the light. This is the critical thing that you need to know. Not for me answering the question, but he is answering the question. He's just saying this. I'm just going to be here for a little bit longer, and you're no longer going to see me. I've been here for three years, coming consistently to Jerusalem to teach and to do miracles. And so walk in the light. Come to the light. And so there's this great danger of missing the light. And so here's what he tells them. Listen, the light of the world, me, I am in your midst, and this is the priority. You must come to me. As the light of the world. Secondly, Jesus says, if you don't have my light, then darkness is going to be your lot. This will be the direction of your life. You must walk in the light. Outside of the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 9, it says this. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble. Because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night or in the dark, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus says, come to the light, lest the light is removed from your midst. And all you have is darkness as the pathway for your life. Here's the third thing, third danger of missing the light. Without the light, you're going nowhere but to the judgment. So the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going and what eventually happens is there is judgment that's there. So there's a glory of believing and becoming something.
So in 36, it says this. It says, while you have the light, while I am here, believe in the light. And when you believe in the light, you become sons or daughters, children of the light. So let me close with this. If I had a real big balloon this morning and I blew it up, big red balloon, really big one, cool one. And I blew it up and it was about this size and I let it go, what would it do? And it would land somewhere. And I'd go over there and I'd blow it up again and I could spend all day today blowing it up, letting it go, and it would go everywhere, never land in the same place. And then I could spend all day today and it just goes everywhere. And I want to say this this morning. Do you picture that in your mind? It just fill it up, let it go, and it blows up. That is our world today. The balloon represents a life and this is what so many people do. They believe in some kind of philosophy. They embrace it. They fill their life up with it. And then they just go, this isn't life. And they repudiate that or they reject that. And then they blow and they land somewhere else. And they've got a new philosophy over here. And they fill their life up with all of that. And then in time they find out that's not life. And they reject that. And then they land somewhere else. And they spend their life going from place to place to be filled up. And I'm just here today to say, stop doing that. That I have great hope and great news in the room this morning. There is a God who never had a beginning and He's so holy and righteous that He came to die for His enemies and unrighteous people. And He died on an altar of a cross that became a throne of life where there's an invitation to come to know Him. And in His death, He gets the greatest exaltation. He gets the greatest glory because of who He is, the perfect one who died. And He is... Calling you and I today, quit chasing after the wind and come to me. While you have the light, while there is a testimony about the love of Jesus in your midst, come to the light. He's tenderly calling us to come. If you'd like to know about that, we would love to talk with you about that. So grab us and grab one of us. And again, you can do this right where you're sitting right now. You can just say this, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. And, 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 and he, if, he's, if he's drawing you, you'll know it if he's drawing you. And he's calling and you recognize that you need him. And he's opening your eyes to that reality. He is offering life in this room today, not death. He's offering life, spiritual life, spiritual hope spiritual salvation and we'd love to talk with you about that when the service is over grab me i'd love to talk with you or set up a time to talk with you this week about that or we can talk today whatever the case may be and uh, mark and i are going to be at the back and uh, we'll have a woman back there as well if you're a woman and you want to talk with someone we're going to sing a song in a minute if you want to talk about your salvation we'd love to do that so i want you to hear the words again The light is among you a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where they are going. They go from place to place to place to place to place. But while you have the light, 
Believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. What salvation we have been given because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.